Everybody go, Dave, I'm happy for you, and let's the rest of us be happy as well, all right? Okay, we, we got to kind of do this. Uh, get up, get up, all right? All right? All right. How you doing today? All right. Own it. Like Mark said, Cubs won. We can cheer. Amen? All right. You can have a seat. <laughs> yeah, he did. <laughs> yeah, he did. Hey, guys, listen, last week we, we, uh, we, we launched into something. I threw a number up on the screen and invited you to text questions in as I was preaching. The basic idea behind this is simple. I've always thought that what we do here right now, like this time, is always better served as a dialogue rather than a monologue. What I'm going to invite you to do today as well is if you have a question that comes to mind as we're going through 1 Thessalonians... Uh, Text it in, and uh, through the course of this week or next week, I'll hit on that and uh, help fill in some of those gaps for you. But let's start with last week, some that came in. Three that I wanted to bring attention to. One person texted in this, if God is all-knowing, wouldn't he know we were going to fail before we failed? Are you following the line of thought here? Short, easy answer on this. Yeah, he totally did. All right? There are prophets in the Bible. Are there modern-day prophets? Yes. Yes, there are. In fact, look at what Paul says at one place. He says, I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, which is probably like, wait, huh? Yeah, he wants every one of you to speak in tongues, but he would rather have you prophesy so not only is one side weird, both sides are completely weird, right? I'll leave it at that. Yeah, Paul understood himself to be a prophet. He understood the disciples' message to be messages of prophecy. And he says that you can be a part of that too when you carry God's word forward. We're going to look in 1 Thessalonians today, but let me just read you some of the things he says in this letter that touches on this. At what point he says this, when, when you welcomed the message that we gave, you, mess, you welcomed it with the joy given as though it was from the Holy Spirit. And he says later, we, we, we thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. I mean, Paul himself said, this message I bring. It's like God's words himself. It's not like God's words itself. It is. So, yeah, modern-day prophets, and it's not as strange, weird, or isolated as you might think. Finally, someone asked this. Who was Paul writing these letters to? He wrote 13 in the New Testament. Who's he writing them to? How did he address the letter and who received and read the letters at that time? Short answer is he wrote them to all different kinds of people, depending which letter you're reading. And the cool thing that Paul does in all of them is he lets you know right off the bat. So what I want to invite you to do is pull out a Bible. If you brought one, fantastic. If not, you can find them under your chair. And open to 1 Thessalonians with me. It's buried back deep in the bowels of the Old Testament. If you're not careful, you can miss uh, New Testament, excuse me. Um, if you're not careful, you can miss it. Maybe use table of contents if you need it. And let's see what Paul says 
to this. 1 Thessalonians opens, and he says what? Paul, but look at this, also Silas and Timothy. So off the bat, the letter isn't even just written by Paul. Now, now, is he just giving his traveling companions a little bit of air time here, and he's really penning the sucker? Or were they so a team? Were they so interwoven in each other's lives and a part of this together that the, the words you're going to read here in 1 Thessalonians is almost like the common mind of the three melding together despite Paul being the spokesman. And he says he writes it to the church of the Thessalonians, those in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And the beginning of every letter will tell you. Now, who read these? If you flip to the very last verses of Thessalonians, look at what he says in 5 verse 25. Brothers. He calls them brothers. And that includes chickies too, all right? Pray for us. I can roll with that. Greet all the brothers with the holy kiss. I got no business with that. All right? And I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to who? All the brothers. So if brothers includes male and females alike, would that include everyone in the Thessalonian church? Would they be included in all? Would that include the brothers and sisters in maybe Rome or Corinth or Philippi? Would that include you here today? And so it comes into the New Testament as a letter written to this group of believers in this, this town called Thessalonica. But in truth, a message of God to us all. So let's talk about this book, First Thessalonians, today. I encourage you actually to keep your Bibles out. Um, we're going to be doing a little looking around. And even as I'm talking, you might want to be scanning and reading sections to just see how things morph together. Where are these people? Here is a rough map of the Roman Empire in Paul's day. Now, you can see Jerusalem is right there, sitting right there on the Dead Sea. Paul himself is from a town called Tarsus up here. But Thessalonica is way over here, and in Paul's day, it was the second largest city in Greece. Here's a picture of it today. This is modern-day Thessaloniki. In Paul's day, it was a huge, bustling commercial center. It boasted a huge port. It had a great nightlife, right? If you look in the background, you can see a mountain looming. You see that? That is Mount Olympus of Greek god fame. And Thessaloniki was one of these ancient towns that they kind of prided themselves in their Greek heritage. There, there was temples and shrines to, to gods and movements and philosophies all over the place. The imperial cult as well. And the story of what happens, and you can read this in, in the book of Acts, which recounts Paul's travels, is that he's given this mission by the apostles in Jerusalem. He's given this mission to go out and spread the word. Because see, there was a controversy in, 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 among the believers at that time. And it basically went like this. Jesus is Jew. All of us, they were saying at the time, are Jews. 
Our message, our teaching, what everything Jesus has done is really nothing more than a fulfillment or continuation on of that great deep Jewish story that God has been doing from the beginning. So here's the question. If you want to be saved, do you need to become a Jew? Because if Jesus is a Jew, and they're all Jews, and what this is about is the fulfillment of what Jewishness or Judaism is, do you need to be in the stream of Judaicness in order to be a part of this kingdom and in order to enjoy these blessings? I got to tell you guys, this, this kind of messed them up at the time. They were sitting there going, man, man, I don't know. This is tough. And they came to a conclusion. And you can read about this in Acts, where they said this, you know, we're going around and we're seeing something really weird happening. God is working among people who aren't Jewish. And in fact, God is, 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 is pouring his Holy Spirit out that he used to just reserve for the prophets. He is pouring the Spirit out upon, like, Roman soldiers and, 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 and these Greek women who are kind of like hanging on the outskirts of the synagogue and all these other people, he's pouring the spirit out. God seems to be alive and at work among them. They seem to be enjoying the blessings of God and his kingdom. And this was the message. Go to all the synagogues. Let all the churches know, which were at this point like 95% Jewish. Let them know. Gentiles, you who aren't Jews, nah, the path to salvation is not through becoming Jewish. In Jesus and Jesus alone, you can be saved. Now, Paul and Silas and Timothy and Barnabas and some of these other guys we're going to meet in these letters at times, they're charged with this task, spread the word, because we can't email them, you know? So, so get on the road, take this message out, and start taking it to places like Damascus, to places like Antioch, to places like Tarsus. I mean, like the epic road trip of all time, Right? Take it up to places like Galatia and, 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 and Colossus. And something interesting happens. While Paul is doing this journey, Paul will say that he gets this vision. He actually physically, literally gets this vision of like this, this angelic figure coming to him. And he goes, you know what, Paul? The Greeks need to hear this as well. And so he decides to keep going. I mean, why end it a thousand miles, right? He decides to keep pushing on and he starts traveling up here to bring the same message to the Greeks as well. Now he comes to this place called Philippi. He gets his rear handed to him, like, like hardcore. He has to be snuck out in like the middle of the night to get him out of Philippi. So he drops down here into Thessalonica. And it says in Acts that what Paul does is he comes to this, this place. He comes to these Jewish synagogues there. And he starts sharing the message that the apostle sent him to bring, that, that salvation comes not through being a Jew, but through Jesus alone. Now, you kind of got to get this set in your head a little bit, because Paul is in Jewish synagogues, right? Which means, who do you think are like the majority share of people there? Jews, Right? But see, what would happen back then, like it often happens in things today, 
those who feel like they didn't really belong, weren't really sure if they were supposed to be there, if it was okay, you follow me? You ever have those situations? They're kind of like sitting in the back row. They're sitting in the back row of these synagogues. They're sitting on the outskirts, and they're just kind of like listening to this because, see, they're attracted to this God too, but there's a problem. They're not Jewish. So can this God love someone like them too? And here's Paul, and he comes to this this Greek city of Thessalonica where the Jews are the minority in the geography but the majority in the place. And he starts sharing this message, and something amazing starts happening. Something that goes beyond what Paul will say, just words. He says it's like the Holy Spirit takes a hold of these, and he starts gripping hearts and convicting people. And, and, and these Gentiles who are sitting around the back, as Acts puts it, these, these Greek speakers, these barbarians, and, 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 and he says, and not a few women either, you, you know, are all in the back listening to this, and they're going, boom, and lives are being changed. They're coming and a few of the Jews as well. But there's others sitting there as well. And they're watching this take place. What's happening to our synagogue? Who do these Gentiles think they are coming in to our place? And they turn on Paul. They turn on him. They turn on him and they run him out. And they start looking for anyone who belongs to what they're calling simply at this time, the way. And they're dragging them before the courts. There's an excavation in Thessalonica that I want to show you. Here's just part of the ruins that that exist from Paul's day. But check out this one. This, This forum. This place where it seemed that that the courts would meet, that public meetings would take place. And it's to this place that some of these believers are dragged and beaten before the Roman governors who are still in charge of the region. Listen to what they say. They write in Acts chapter 17. You can read this for yourself. It says they looked for him, but they did not find Paul and Silas, so they dragged this other guy named Jason and some other brothers before the city officials. We should, like, drag Jason around here today, don't you think? that They dragged him before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are defying Caesar's decrees saying that there's another king, one called Jesus. Do you see the irony of it? Jews who are looking forward to a messianic king going, kill these guys because they say there is another king and his name is Jesus. Another king besides Caesar. And just like what happened at Philippi, happened at Thessalonica, Paul is snuck out in the middle of the night for fear of his life. And the Thessalonians are left in their wake. And this is what the letter is about. Because would you imagine that the trouble goes away just because Paul is no longer there with something to say? Because now you have all these Gentiles and some of the Jews as well. 
come to see the salvation in Jesus, this, this fulfillment that, that the king has come, that the resurrection is real, and that it's breaking in here today. And they started taking it on the chin. They started taking it on the chin for their faith. You can read about this in Thessalonians. These believers who were left behind in Paul's wake, struggling, suffering. They're being ostracized. They're being gossiped about. Their businesses are starting to tank because we're not going to associate anymore in Thessalonica with people like them. Some are being jumped in dark corners. Some are being rushed by mobs. Some are being beaten and stoned and driven out of town. It would seem even from Thessalonians that some are dying by mob rule for their faith. And this is what this letter is about. Paul writing back to this community that he founded and created so much trouble for. Because I tell you, when prophets speak, trouble is often close behind. Writing to this community that is suffering so much, saying, guys, hang in there. It's worth it. Saying things like you've turned from idols, you've turned from your former ways, you've turned to serve the living God. Hang in there. Continue to fight the good fight of faith. Hang in there. Because it's worthwhile. You can find Thessalonians summed up in two places. Two places in the letter. In one, Paul says this. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of God, our Father, when our Lord Jesus Christ comes with all his holy ones. And later, may God himself may sanctify you, may he holify you, you know what I mean? Through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why would Paul have something to say? Why would Paul write this to them in the first place? Can I ask you, have you ever taken it on the chin for your faith? Have you ever faced embarrassment, ridicule, a little bit of ostracization because of what you believe? Have you ever stuck out as the odd one going, man, it would just be like so much easier here to go with the flow? Has your pattern and behavior of life been so markedly different from those who you love and those who you call friends that even though when you're among them, you stick out as the weird one when all you want to do is blend in? Now escalate it. Escalated to abuse, verbal and physical. Escalated to mob action like believers in India and Pakistan are facing today. Escalated to things like the threat of, are they going to come and hurt my kids, hurt my wife, 
burn down my house, kill me. Would you ask yourself, is this worth it? Would it ever cross your mind? What am I doing this for to begin with? Is this stuff even true? If so, maybe you're feeling a little bit what it would be like to be a Thessalonian in Paul's day. And he writes to them, may God strengthen you. Hang in there and may he strengthen you. Hang in there and stay blameless. Continue to follow Jesus and the way. Be holy and blameless because he's coming. He's coming with all his holy ones. May God himself take you and give you his strength. May your whole spirit be kept blameless. Because Paul knows this firsthand, it would be so much easier to give in. Now, for Paul, and in 1 Thessalonians, the entire substance and reason to hang in there revolves around one word that I'd like to teach you today. Here it is. It's pronounced like this, perusia. Now, don't listen to me say it casually, because I always say perusia. I say it wrong, all right? It's perusia. Give it to me today. Here's what it means. Coming, arrival, official visit. Now, Mark read just a little bit ago a passage that I'd like to put back up here again today. He says, we're who's still alive. Who here is alive? All right. Who here is dead? That's a thought. All right. We who are still alive, who are left till the parousia, right, of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. It's a euphemism for just saying we're dead. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven, and after that we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds of the Lord to meet the air. For Paul, the parousia and all it entails is the reason to hang in there. Because for Paul, hope makes holiness worthwhile. Paul is calling these Thessalonians to hang in, to be holy, to fight the good fight, to stick in there. Why? Just for its own benefit's sake? No, you got to be kidding me. Paul will say, for this life only, we hope in Christ. We are we're idiots. He says, we of all men are most to be pitied, if that's the case. No, Paul says, hang in there because the king has come. And the king is coming again. And when he does, it will make everything worthwhile that you face until then. Hang in there, he says, because Jesus is coming. Hang in there, he says, because Jesus knows. Hang in there, he says, because this won't go unnoticed and the king will come and vindicate his holy ones and take them up to be with him as well. 
Not only so, hang in there, he says, because even if you die for your faith, we get to be with him first. We get to be with him first, waiting until the day when he comes again. Now, what's fascinating about this word parousia is that it's a, it's a political word, actually, in Paul's day. Remember when I said earlier, what does it mean? Coming, arrival, or official visit? Here's how this would kind of play. The Caesars of your day would come and they would tour their empire. And when they were coming to your town, it was a lot like the president showing up today. You know, the president just doesn't go, hey, man, I feel like hitting Chicago and landing a plane, right? No, word goes out. The Secret Service gets ready. The news starts broadcasting the day. And the same thing took place in Caesar's day. When Caesar was coming to visit, heralds would go out, apostles sent to carry the word, saying, Caesar is coming, Caesar is coming. Be ready. This is the day. And the people would start counting it down. Ten more days, five more days, two more days, and then comes the day when Caesar comes to town. I don't know, whenever I say that, I feel like I can see like Santa Claus is coming to town. Or does that go into your mind too? Now, you guys watch any of like the visit with the Pope in Philadelphia, in D.C. a couple of weeks ago? You check this out? You see this? All right. People knew the day, Right? What happened on that day? Did you see any of the coverage before he actually pulled up in that like kicking little black fiat, right? Did you see what was happening beforehand? What was going on? People started to go out, right? They started to line the streets. They're bringing their kids, they're bringing their cooler, they're bringing their six-pack, they're bringing their lawn chair. They're setting up because we are going to a parade. I remember back in 19, was it 79, when John Paul II came to Chicago? Anyone remember this? Hardcore stuff in the city itself. Here's the reason why. John Paul was Polish. Chicago, you might not know, is the second largest Polish city in the world. Warsaw is first, and then Poland, and then Chicago. Chicago has a bigger Polish population than any other city in Poland. Okay? You're clicking on this. Then Warsaw. So when a Polish pope is coming to town, it was like mayhem. For weeks, I remember this. My dad was a printer at the time, and he thought he was going to get in on this because everyone was, like, running the streets, hocking their wares, right? My dad was a printer. He printed up all these, like, commemorative Pope cards, and he was selling them on the street. 150,000 of these suckers. We still got, like, 20,000 in our garage today, you know? Outselling these because it was, like, taste of Chicago. I mean, it was hundreds of thousands of people going out, lining the streets to see the Pope come near and there's the official delegation that goes out to officially meet him. They don't just go, ah, wait for him to ring the doorbell, then we open it up, right? No, you go out to meet him when the parousia draws near. Are you with me? Now, Paul hijacks this term 
and he applies it to Jesus. You know what it's like, he's saying, when the Caesars come to town? You know what it's like, he's saying, when the Pope comes to town? For those of you hanging in there, it's the same with him. Because when Jesus comes, it's something bigger than just the secret service. It's with something more than just the Swiss guard. He is coming with all those who precede us who are alive to this day. And they are coming with him. Now think about this. Where does Caesar go after he comes to town? Where does the Pope go as he's near in D.C.? Is it, I mean, is it just like the parade route? Is it just like he starts driving in and, oh, man, there's a lot of people here. See how this plays out? Keeps driving in and gets close. Now, there's way too many people there at D.C. Then he splits. Right? Is that how it works? The people that are coming with him, do they kind of come with and go, eh, nah, and then they go away? No, why do they go out to meet him? To usher him in. And Paul starts talking about this in, in all these kind of crazy, strange ways. That Christ will come, the parousia is coming, and with him the dead who are with him, and we who are still alive will be lifted up to meet him in the air on what? The greatest, most amazing parade of all time to usher him back in. See, there's some strange ideas that have crept into Christianity. That a day is going to come when when Jesus is going to kind of like peek in and take all believers away to be with him and leave the earth to fend for itself. But for Paul, the hope is never escape. It's parousia. It's Jesus coming in and us meeting him on the way. Like, like Jesus coming into Palm Sunday, going outside the city walls to follow him in, singing his praises, proclaiming his glory, looking forward to a day of unbeatable hope that makes holiness worthwhile today. And that is what this letter to this church in Thessalonica is all about. And depending where you're at today, it's going to mean different things. Because in Thessalonians, Paul says, unlike an official visit, when Jesus comes like a thief in the night, a surprise, no advanced announcement, no forward team, when the king decides the king is here. Now, for those of us who are guilty, it's a day that's going to be filled with fear. But for those who are in Christ, he says it's a day of hope. And Paul invites them, whether Jew or Gentile here, 
all who call in the name of the Lord will be saved. The day will come like a thief. Call on the name of the Lord. Turn from idols, he will say, and serve the living God. And suddenly that day will no longer be something dread. It'll be a day of joy that you wait, can't wait to come near. To those in Christ, he says things like this. Be sober. Stay awake. And he's not talking literally, right? Be sober, stay awake, because let's face it, it's been 2,000 years. It feels a long time in coming. But be sober, stay awake, fight the good fight, he'll say. Stay ready. Be blameless. Serve the living God as you look forward to the day that draws near. See, the real question that Thessalonians begs is this. Where's your hope? Where's your hope and what do you look forward to? Is your hope in the peace and security that you have now just like so many had in Paul's day? Or is it something more? Is your hope in your own abilities laced with the Holy Spirit to give you a better life now? Or is it something more? And that is what Thessalonians is about. I love how he closes. He writes this. To those who have believed my message, be joyful. Always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. And may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. To you who are trying to hold on, the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Amen. I'd like to invite you to rise. Band is going to come forward. And as they do, I think maybe we should put Paul's words into practice. Turn from idols, he says. We might not bow down to Apollo and Zeus, but the 21st century has its own idols as well, would you agree? Turn from idols, he says, and serve the living God. Let's get right with him today. Let's come clean. I want to invite you to confess your idolatry and your sins and call upon the name of the Lord with me this day. Let's pray.
Most merciful God, we confess that we are by nature sinful and unclean. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We justly deserve your present and eternal punishment. But for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us, forgive us, renew us, and lead us, so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. I'll only speak for myself in this, but I know that I'm an idolater through and through. I know I'd rather sleep than stay alert. I know too many times I'm deluded and drunk on the wrong things. Then in soberness, evaluating everything in my life from God's eyes. I know that left to my own devices, there's no way I'm turning from the idols I love. How about you? There's a new passage that I want to share with you that we're going to be looking at these next few weeks. It comes from Galatians. I'd like to, I'd like to share it with you today. Paul writes, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Brothers and sisters, he gave himself for you as well. And he doesn't leave you to your own devices to hang in there and be holy. Because if you are in Christ, you have been crucified with him. The life you live, live by faith in the Son of God. He gave himself for you. That makes you holy and blameless. In him. I want to invite you to own these words with me today. Make them your prayer with me right now. Say them with me. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Amen?